Hello and welcome to the In Consultation With podcast, where I talk to different people inside and out of the veterinary profession to explore the variety of careers that are available and to get more of an insight into the exciting and diverse lives of vets and other professionals. I'm Alexia Yanuli, a qualified vet. I am currently doing a master's in science communication at Imperial College London and I also work as editor of Vet Report, a news site for the veterinary profession. In these podcasts, I go in consultation with different people to discuss their careers and their interests and to show just how diverse our profession really is. For this podcast, I had the pleasure of sitting down figuratively, as we're both on different continents, to speak with Matt Holland. I was really excited to speak with Matt. We uh, first met at the Big Student Careers Fair, which was part of the Global Veterinary Careers Summit. Matt and I were on the same panel talking about diversifying and doing different things with our veterinary degrees. If it hadn't been for that careers fair, Matt and I might not have crossed paths. He's got such an interesting personal and professional story, which you'll hear about in this podcast. From starting out in TV and radio production, he worked as a television producer for media channels in Chicago and New York before deciding to change his career path and apply to vet school. During his time at vet school, he was president of the Student American Veterinary Medicine Association and became heavily involved in policy, also undertaking a congressional fellowship in Washington, D.C., He now sits on the Veterinary Information Network, or VIN, Foundation Board of Directors, as the veterinary student and pre-veterinary student advocate. Not only that, but he's also a mental health advocate and he writes some really amazing haikus. I really enjoyed my conversation with Matt and I hope that you will as well. We discussed topics from career change to policy to mental health to diversifying within the profession and everything in between. Thank you again for joining me and taking the time to sit and do the podcast. You've obviously had a really interesting and varied career even before you went to vet school and became a vet. Um, I just thought could you start telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and just what you've done in your career so far? Yeah uh, so I grew up just outside Chicago, Illinois and wanted to be a professional baseball player Um, and that did not work out Uh, so I thought the next best thing would be to cover sports. Um, So I studied journalism and um, moved back to Chicago after school, um, which was in Des Moines, Iowa, not too far away um, from where I grew up and started doing sports television production. Um, But my my first job was seasonal. And so I worked for a football season, so like American football, not soccer, uh, and then a basketball season. And then um, my work said, all right, we'll see you, see you next fall. And I had, it was like March, and so I had a really big gap in my schedule and bills to pay and, you know, like <laughs> adult things to do. And so I was like, shoot, what do I do? And I went to Craigslist and found a job as a dog walker, and I loved it. And so um, the next off season, I worked at a shelter and I loved that. And then the next off season, I worked at uh, Banfield as like a kennel cleaner and, um, you know, like doing the intake for appointments and um, all these experiences over time um, kind of planted the seed that I might change gears at one point. And I, I didn't know exactly what I would change into, but I was slowly finding that working in sports television was not fulfilling and I wanted my job to be fulfilling. And at the time I like, 
I, I was doing so much self-reflection and I came up with this phrase that um, working with, like working in TV felt like existing and working with animals felt like living. And so um, at, at some point I just decided to bite the bullet and go for it, go for veterinary school. And I had to get my prerequisites first. So I was working um, during the days and then nights and weekends getting my biology and chemistry and genetics and physics and all these prerequisites um, so that I could apply and eventually applied to the vet school in Illinois and, um, and got in. And so that's how I got to veterinary school. I think it's amazing as well that you can, that you were brave enough to actually go and say, I'm going to do something completely different because I think what sometimes might happen is if people are just stuck in one thing, they feel like they can't just change their life and go and do something else. But I think it's really amazing that you did. Yeah, I, um, well, thank you. Um, I, I kind of like a little bit of the decision was to um, prove to myself that I could, because I, I thought the same thing. I was like, can someone actually do this? Like, like, can you just quit your job and do something different? And I was looking at all the logistics and I was like, well, yeah, like I just need the, these prerequisites and I just need to get accepted into vet school. Like that's like, there's no, there's no unwritten rule anywhere that says like, I'm not allowed to do this. Um, and so part of it for me was the, like, I definitely wanted to go to vet school and become a veterinarian, but part of it was the challenge of like, like, Hey, can I, I don't know, like I've never run a marathon or climbed a mountain or anything, but I, I bet it's a similar feeling to what people who do that for the first time is like, yeah, like this is a really hard thing and I want to do it. And I want to prove to myself that I'm capable. Um, so that was, that was definitely an element of, of this switch. And I think I, I can echo a little bit of that as well, because I, when I had teachers and things telling me, you can't get the grades, like you don't really, you're not clever enough to, to go and be a vet or get those grades. And I think that that similar to you maybe spurred me on a bit because I was like, oh, well, actually I want to prove it. I want to, I want to do it. Oh yeah. I, I had some of that, some very close people in my life. They weren't, uh, they weren't discouraging me from going, but they were, uh, they were like trying to be the voice of reason and healthy skepticism and saying like, now Matt, remember you really don't like school and you also really struggle with science courses. So like go in with eyes wide open. And I was like, I know those things are true. Or like, you know, they were true when I was younger um, and I had other interests, but I like, I can do it. You know, I, like so many other people have gone to vet school before. There's no reason I can't. Exactly. And I'm going to backtrack a tiny bit, but I know you mentioned that you loved basketball and, and, and sports and, and that's kind of what made you want to study radio and TV production. But when you were doing it, what did you enjoy most about that role? Uh, that's a good question. What did I enjoy most? Um, I think it was... The, I mean, this will be a theme throughout the podcast probably is relationships. Um, so with my coworkers, but also with the people that I was, um, like the athletes that I was working with, it was really fun to, you know, like you'd go and, and for work, like do the interview and ask them about the game or ask them about how practice went. Uh, but when the cameras were off, it was really fun to like, 
get to know them. And I think the, the part that I enjoyed most about that was learning that um, this, this is going to be one of those things that sounds like, you know, like what's the, I, I can't, I can't think of the phrase right now, um, but it's like self-evident, but um, I learned that people are just people. Um, and that, yeah, that sounds obvious, but like even these like multi-million dollar athletes who have these huge platforms and are, are like admired by entire cities or sometimes more than that, they're just regular people who are usually pretty nice and like they're not perfect and they have feelings just like the rest of us and they... Um, that was a, a really uh, a really valuable lesson I learned early on in life is that I don't know when we think of I, I can just speak for myself um, but when I think of like you know the president or like a really famous author or um, you know an actor or somebody I think they're kind of like you know I fall into this trap of thinking they're like a different kind of person or like a special kind of person and like and and that I don't have, like, obviously I don't have anything in common with them because they're on this um, elite plane and like, I'm just a regular person. But in reality, they're, they're just people like all of us are. Um, and that, that helps me to ground myself and realize that like, we're all a lot more connected than, than sometimes we think. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really valid point that makes complete sense when you say it but we don't you know I know I certainly had a similar thing where you think oh they're on a different in a different realm to me even when you're right they are literally just people the same as us with the same kind of well similar problems and different problems but yeah definitely it's a really good point yeah similar yeah they they like their kids they like their animals like like they're pretty you know they got a big entourage following them around and like a security detail but like, and you can't just approach them on the street, but, uh, like it's, it's fascinating to, to just like be, to, to be in that space with somebody who you previously thought was like untouchable. Um, talking about like, oh yeah, my, my kid woke me up at night again. (laughs) Definitely. Um, and so what sort of transferable skills did you feel like you were able to take away from that, from your time in that role? Yeah, um, definitely communication skills. And I, I remember when I was making the switch thinking that uh, I was, it was like the one thing that I was being hard on myself for and giving myself negative self-talk was like, oh, he wasted all this time and all this money on a career that is not at all related to veterinary medicine and like, it's still worth doing it. It's still worth making the switch, but you know, what if I had started earlier? Like I kind of, I was feeling like I had just wasted a bunch of time. And then as I like made my way through veterinary school and after and looked back on, you know, what, what it is that uh, helped me get to where I wanted to be and get to where I am, it was totally communication skills. And that started from like day one of undergrad. I, re- I remember the, the first journalism class I took, um, the teacher said, 
Um, like if you remember one thing from this course, it should be that you should know your audience. And I have taken that with me throughout still to this day um, and knowing my audience when I like am applying for a job or if I'm talking to a professor about needing help. And um, so, yeah, when I was, when I was in school, I was seeing that like, no, like not only was it not a waste of time, it was a valuable investment of time to, um, to be proficient in interpersonal communication skills, because that is like, that's how you do everything in life. And like, I'm not in practice, but that's how you practice veterinary medicine is through communicating with not only your clients, but your colleagues too, and like needing help. And I think of the people who I think of as successful and the people who it seems like they are productive and they get things done and they, they achieve their goals. They almost all have in common that they, they connect with people um, pretty quickly and pretty deeply. And I, 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 I try to emulate that the best that I can, um, because it's, uh, it underpins pretty much everything that we do. Like this podcast, you know, like probably wouldn't have happened without communication skills. And I think like the job that I have now, I wouldn't have had, uh, without communication skills. And it, um, it really, unless you're on like a remote island, like studying, you know, studying only animals that don't speak uh, a human language, like communication skills are valuable in every single role. A hundred percent. And and I think as well, like what you just said. So when I was applying for my master's courses, I was trying to think of like how science communication is incorporated in the, the role of being a vet. And yeah, I guess in a way, like vets, act a little bit like journalists in the sense of you know you're asking the right questions you're trying to get a, not a story but obviously you're trying to get towards like a diagnosis and things like that but it's a very similar thing if you if you think of it like that in terms of them you know you, they've got to ask for the right information to then collect it all and, and make something of it so I think that's a really interesting way to to sort of approach and look at it so um when you were at vet school did you face any challenges or, or adversities while you were there? And if you did, how were you able to overcome any of them? Oh, yeah. Um, tons. So I, I think, I think the big one early on was, so like knowing what I talked about earlier that I, um, I struggle with science courses and that they're, they're just, I'm, I'm like naturally, you know, like art minded versus science minded. I, I minored in music and like majored in writing. Like those are, those are both very much on the art side. And um, so I, I told myself, I'm like, all right, I'm going to focus like only on school and passing because I knew like failing is a real thing. And we had some, we had some classmates in first year who didn't like, didn't make it to second year. And I was like, okay, this is real now. Like I have to <laughs> solve to get um, passing grades. And it was so hard for me to like 
be satisfied with the outcome. And I didn't care if I got straight A's or anything. I just wanted to pass. And even that was challenging for me. Like, I remember um, my school offered um, free tutors to anybody who is getting below uh, 70%. And I was at like a 70.1. So I didn't qualify for a free tutor, which really bothered me. I was like, I need help. <laughs> um, and what really changed things for me was, I talked about earlier was getting a study group and interpersonal skills and like having that like social bond be a part of studying really helped me. And it improved, it not only improved my grades. Well, I mean, I didn't get better grades, but I spent less time uh, studying, getting the same grades. So I thought that was an improvement and I wasn't alone the whole time. So that was a morale boost. And I was like building relationships and making real friends who, you know, I'm still friends with to this day. And that, I think that was a huge a huge struggle for me at the beginning. I, I was really scared that I was um, like doing it wrong. And, but I was also like staying up all night and like trying to pull all nighters and like, and not a sustainable lifestyle um, and ignoring relationships, like not talking to my friends and family back home. And I was like, is this really what vet school is like? Um, so that was, that was a big challenge. And then I think the other big challenge for me was, so like at that point, at that point when I figured out that like, oh, okay, I can, I can handle this and like, and I have some extra time too, like studying wasn't taking as long. So I took on a volunteer role um, as SAVMA delegate. And I think it's, SAVMA is similar to AVS. Is it, do I have that right? Yeah, the Association of Veterinary Students. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah, it's like the Student um, American Vetment Association. And mm -hmm. um, each class has a representative. And so I ran for that position and got it. And then um, I really liked it and ran for the national president. And um, with kind of the same mindset of like getting into vet school in the first place, I was like, hey, I could do this. Like, why, why not? And, you know, like, I'm only going to get one chance to run for this position. So I might as well go for it and see what happens. And I got it. And it was, it was so cool. I, I say that it is the coolest thing I've done, except for getting married. Um, but it was incredibly time consuming. And also during clinical year, and like, there was a lot of travel involved. So like, trying to to balance communicating that like with different clinicians and different rotations that I would be, you know, I would be gone for two or three days during this rotation. And I had the Dean's approval and, you know, if he needed to step in, he would have, um, he never needed to, but that was also like really good training for I want to say communication skills, like kind of like negotiation skills, because some people, some clinicians were really receptive to that. And like, oh, that's so cool. You're representing the profession, like way to go as a student. You know, I totally support you. But some were like very protective of their rotation and like, you know, well, you can't miss that many days on my rotation. Or 
like anybody who misses that much time has to come in and like make up double for it. Um, or, you know, you're going to, you're going to fail the rotation and have to take it over when you are available. And I then would explain like the importance of what I was doing and like representing all the veterinary students in the country to like different stakeholders in the profession. And it would train me to think of like, okay, how can I relate this discussion to your specific rotation to like, you know, emergency vet med or to food animal medicine? Like how, how is this um, absence also like serving the thing that you care about? And again, like training my brain to think of ways that we're all connected because I strongly believe we are. It, we just like have to like take a second and think about how how that is. Um, I mean, I think about that with like you and I, how, you know, we wouldn't have met if not for a conference, um, but we stayed in touch and followed up and like we are connected now. And that, that was true before the conference even happened. Um, but seeing seeing it play out that way is a good reminder that like we we can be connected to anyone it's just like how you like intentionally spend your time and choose to recognize those connections i think yeah you're exactly right and that is such a valid point and i think it's something as well that a lot of people don't necessarily think of as being as important as it is and yeah you're right like it's just when you know you you meet someone and then you know you either meet them and then never do anything you know speak to them again or or kind of see each other in passing but it is really interesting to see how things then follow through and and how you then build sort of your network of people that you know um yeah I think it's massively important and as well like going back to what you were saying about your role while you were at uni that's really impressive like I don't know how you I could barely cope doing rotations and not having anything else to focus on while doing them so that like massive props to you (laughs) Yeah, I, I should say, like, I should have had a therapist during that time, and I didn't. Um, it was balancing that, um, and I had a long-distance relationship, um, and she was super supportive. So that wasn't a source of, like, negative stress, but it's still a source of stress to, like, I want to see this person and spend time with them, but I also have clinics all the time, and I... And then I'm like traveling and it's really hard to do all of those things. And if I knew then what I know now, I definitely would have had a therapist just to talk these things through. And at the time I remember thinking about it, but I was like, that's just one more thing to like set that up. And I know it's really hard to find a good one and I have to go off campus to find it. And I don't really have time, but I definitely, I definitely should have been getting help from a mental health professional because it was, it was really difficult. And I had some, I had some breakdowns that might not have been prevented by having a therapist, but I would have been able to talk it through with, it is, it's good to talk about those things with your friends and your family um, and necessary, but it's also like, really important to talk about those things with a professional who has studied that and does it for a living because I could talk to my wife until I'm blue in the face about feelings and mental health, but she can only go so far in being supportive. She can't really work with me. And yeah, she's, that's not her job. That's not her training. Yeah. And I think um, it's almost like you need someone who 
is completely external to your life and, and to, you know, not having any particular relationship to you. Because um, obviously when you're in a relationship with somebody else or have that connection with someone else, it's it, it's more give and take. Like you you help them, they help you. Whereas if, you know, seeing an actual qualified therapist or, or, or you know, psychotherapist, then they, that is their job. They don't have to give anything back to you. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's good as well to talk about it because so many people who are in the profession don't and so then it appears that you know externally a lot of people seem fine but it is just because there's that stigma I think that is still maybe not as much as it was but it is still present yeah I totally agree there's a stigma I don't know like if you can objectively measure you know how much of a stigma there is over time but it's it's totally there and I like it's this is something I care deeply about um, is like destigmatizing and normalizing it. It's interesting you mentioned the word psychotherapist because I did not know that word uh, until like, let's say, I don't know, a year ago. Um, so I see, I now see a psychotherapist and it, I found that that modality of therapy is much better suited for me than the other types I had tried, like cognitive behavioral therapy. I, I really love my psychotherapist. Like he, when I talk to him, it's like one of the highlights of my day. I was diagnosed with bipolar two disorder last year. And it's, it's something that I like to say out loud and, and mention, especially on something like a podcast, because I think just saying that and like saying that, like, I, you know, here I am, like, I, I successfully graduated veterinary school. Like I have a job that I like. Um, and I also have mental illness that I'm working with is, well, it's kind of like what I said earlier about, you know, talking with these professional athletes. It's like, oh, you know, people who seem successful, like also struggle with things and like, that's okay. Um, that, that stigma is massive and like whatever I can do to help make it smaller. Um, I, it's really important to me to do that. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that as well. I think it, what you've said is completely, it's like massively important in the sense of, you know, by saying I have done all of these things and I have mental health problems, like that is, that's saying that it's not a barrier because it, it really isn't. Like everyone experiences things in a different, you know, they might have different things that they're experiencing, but it's not a deterrent to doing things. It's just something that you have to I guess work alongside is just something else that you have to to deal with in order to then just get everything else done if that makes sense but I think that's a better way yeah. of looking at it than thinking of it as you know something that's going to stop you from doing those things because it it really isn't and you are you know your proof that it that that is not a barrier at all it it reminds me of I guess this is just what happens when you get old like at some point my right hamstring um started giving me problems because I would go to yoga and my right hamstring was always like barking at me afterwards and painful. And I like it, that only changed once I was intentionally paying attention to it. <laughs> that sounds silly. Like I was focusing on it during the yoga practice um, to make sure that I wasn't, you know, positioning it in such a way that would make it worse. And um you know, just spending a little bit of extra mental energy on balancing it out. And I think 
I mean, it's a crude comparison to like bipolar two, or, you know, if, if anybody out there is struggling with like anxiety or depression, um, it's not exactly the same as like a tight hamstring, but the similarity I'm going for is like paying attention to your thoughts and like recognizing the patterns of thoughts that are going to reliably make things worse. Um, and I know what that looks like for me. I can't know what that looks like for anybody else. But once I started realizing, I was like, oh, this is a thing that I'm doing. And this is a thing that I do have control over to, you know, to like do differently, um, to make sure that I, I'm not in as much pain as I am uh, right now. Yeah, I definitely. And I think like, because I've um, done CBT in the past. So that as well, like echoes very similar things in the sense of, you know, you are really becoming aware of your brain patterns and, and stuff that really, really just felt normal because that was, I guess we're always just in our heads, aren't we? So we, we don't know what what's normal to us is, you know, different to other people. But yeah, definitely. Like just having that awareness is sort of the first step to them actually kind of harnessing it and sort of being able to deal with it. Um, and I guess, yeah, you're right. Like you could approach it in different ways, whether that's with a psychotherapist or um, in other types of therapy as well. And I mean, like there's so much out there in terms of therapy. It's just, I guess, finding what works as an individual for you. Yeah, that really reminds me of like, you know, so I said the one thing I took away from journalism school was always know your audience. Um, I think the one thing that, I mean, I've taken a lot away from my work with the psychotherapist, but uh, if I had to pick one thing, it would be like at the beginning, I always asked him like almost every session. I was like, is this normal? And he kept saying, he was like, doesn't matter if it's normal like it matters that it's you and that is like exactly what you just said at the end there you know like finding what works for you as an individual and I remember the one time I asked if this is normal and I heard him I heard him respond before he did and I was like okay now I think I've learned what you're trying to teach yeah no I think that it is um it's really good that having that discussion as well it just makes everyone more aware of of things um especially like you know like we said in the profession so I think there are a lot of people who who really just sit and they they don't say anything because they think that it's a sign that they're not coping with things when I think that as well is something that needs to be destigmatized that you know just because you're going through something it doesn't mean that you're not doing your job or not, you're not able to do your job um and I think it's only now that people are starting to talk about it more it just needs to carry on in that sort of trajectory yeah and I mean I, I get, again I can only speak for myself but like I think a lot of people have agreed with me when I've when I've posed this is like if somebody told me that they needed help and that they were seeing a therapist I wouldn't like I wouldn't think they were weak I wouldn't think that they you know made a bad decision by doing that but when I flip it around on me I like, like at the beginning of it, I did think I was weak for needing help and like, you know, well, why can't I figure this out on my own? And it, it's just seems like, I don't know if it's veterinarians or just people in general that we are so much harder on ourselves than we are on other people. And um, I heard this quote the other day that it's like, you know, we are often our own worst enemy, but we should try to be our own best friend. And, you know, like, what would you say 
to a friend who needed help, you know, versus what would you say to yourself if you need help? That That's honestly, it's so true. I think we are all, I know I'm guilty of thinking, oh, everyone else is doing like all of these amazing things. They're doing a really good job. And then I look at what I'm doing and think, am I doing a good job? You know, could I be doing better um, when other people aren't, you know, think, looking at me and thinking that in fact, they're probably not looking at me and thinking anything at all because they're too busy worried about what, <laughs> yeah. what you know what people think of them and it's just that weird kind of thing where you're worrying about what other people are thinking it is a weird yeah. way of looking at it and I think yeah just talking about it really is um the most effective thing that we can do in the profession to just keep going and keep going along those lines until people do recognize that it is just normal like it's it's everyone you know everyone's dealing with mental health yeah, and I, I think of like, you know, I think of this this big problem we see in the profession in terms of like um, depression and suicide and what do we do about it? You know, like, well, if it was that easy, we would have already done it. Um, and so like what can actually make change, I think, is conversations like this one and changing the culture little by little. And um, I you know, again, I know this is, I sound like a broken record now, but like reminding ourselves that we're all connected and like you and I have a conversation like this, we're more likely to go have it with other people. And then they might be more likely to go have it with other people. And that, um, that's what slowly changes the culture over time. And it really reminds me as well. I don't know if you've read, uh, have you heard of Dustin Lance Black? He, um, no. He directed the film uh, Milk, you know, with Harvey Milk. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And he also wrote a book called Mama's Boy about um, growing up. Yeah, just his, his life, his mother's life. And he talks a lot about, um, like, building bridges in the sense of, like, having those conversations. And that's something that he really echoes in his book. So if you do get a chance to read it, it's it's a really, really good book. He grew up gay in America, but, like, very closeted. And, and I guess it's a similar sort of thing of you know having those conversations and sharing experiences and things um but yeah it's a really great book sorry that just reminded me of what you were saying yeah I, I guess what you what you just said makes me think of like I, I guess I'm privileged because I don't feel like at risk for saying any any of that like for being vulnerable um like maybe people will think less of me but a I kind of doubt it and b like if they do, I don't want them around anyway. Um, but like being gay in America, especially decades ago, it was like you're at risk for violence. Like you, you might be killed for that. So there's a there's a big difference there. So yeah, it's um, just recognizing my privilege and like easier for me to do this than to do something like come out in the '60s or '70s. Yeah, I think I I maybe miss interpreted what I was saying then in terms of I didn't I meant like the concept of you know building those experiences and things but I completely agree like those are completely separate entities um I think it is just the idea of broaching the conversations that could be applied to different situations but yeah you're absolutely right it is about like recognizing privilege but also like uh, you know from talking to you I my opinion of you has not changed in fact if anything it has made me more I guess comfortable with being able to like ask questions and you know I wouldn't think any different of you other than great we can have this conversation. Yeah something that I think about a lot is you know being a white male in America comes with a degree of privilege that other identities don't have 
And so that's another thing that's important to me, like, like conversations about mental health. Like it's also important for me to vocally out loud say those kinds of things, because I think for me anyway, the changes I want to see in the world are accompanied by those things, like people calling out privilege. Like I, I don't think any less of myself because I happen to be a white male, like that's out of my control. Right. But like recognizing how that, how that plays into um, the society we live in, I think is really important for changing the society that we live in. And I would like to change the society we live in because they're, yeah, it, I think if our society got a report card in grade school, it would be like, see me after class needs lots of improvement. That is like a perfect way to describe the sort of encompassing all the issues together. Yeah, just a, not a very good report card at all, which is, you know, it's not um, not what a lot of people want. And yet that seems to be kind of what we're living in, um, even though a lot of people are driving change and, you know, it, it's slow, but it, it's just about kind of heading in that, that right direction. And I think a lot of people share that common ground. It's just you know, you've got to get everyone on board and, and just really keep having those conversations in lots of different aspects of life, which, you know, just reiterating what you've said. Yeah. And that's a, I feel like that's a good segue to um, like get back on track of the veterinary journey because I like, I went into school thinking I was going to be James Harriet um, and have a clinic out of my truck or van in the rural countryside and the guy who taught those courses um, also taught public health and policy. And I, I found that part of his courses really fascinating. And I would always stay after class and bother him, like, like tell, me, tell me a story about this, or like, tell me, you know, tell me this about policy. And um, he, it turns out he had, um, he had completed this fellowship in Washington, D.C., and um, uh, like working for a member of Congress. And he he one day pulled me aside and was like, you know, I think you'd be a really good fit for this fellowship with your like your background in communication and your interest in policy and like making change on a bigger scale. Um, I think you should look into that and, um, you know, maybe go that direction with your degree, because like the way he framed it was like, that's every bit as important as, um, you know, people who veterinarians who practice. Um, but there, there just aren't that many people who are interested in using their degree in policy. Like most people go to vet school to practice and to work like, you know, to work on patients and, or work with patients. And um, so I, yeah, I moved to Washington DC after school and um, spent a year uh, working for a member of Congress and then a year and a half working for the USDA. And that, that was like definitely scratching the itch of what we just talked about, like this societal change. And I, I was like, all right, how do things work in Washington, D.C.? And like, what is what is really driving change? And, um, you know, how how are these decisions made? And like, who gets to make them? And where is the influence coming from? And like, just 
taking, I mean, years to like get a sense of that, um, that scene and then applying it, you know, like now I've got that experience and I can apply it to the rest of what I do. And if I had to pick one, one quote to take away from that whole experience, it would be um, think global, act local. So like the way I see that is like, you don't have to live in Washington, DC, or you don't have to live like in the country's capital and like work in the middle of federal government to make change. Um, you, you think about the change you wanna see on a global level and then you act locally, like in your community. And so again, like I, like, you know, what we just did about talking about mental health, like, yes, we would like to see a profession that, um, you know, doesn't struggle the way it does with those things, um, which is thinking globally, that's like a, an entire profession, but just acting locally, like talking about it with, you know, somebody on a podcast or talking about it with a friend is like, that's a way to, you know, move just a, a teeny little bit in that direction definitely and I think that's such a cool opportunity to have that sort of after you've studied so then from that role did you then did that then lead you to the role that you're in now at the Better Information Network is that how you got to that point yeah so the second fellowship was two years and it was I was a year and a half in and the agency I was working for had relocated to Kansas City and my wife and I did not want to move to Kansas City um and so I was looking for jobs in DC and um, I, I applied for one and didn't get it. And so at that point I sent out kind of like an SOS email to my mentors and I was like, hey, um, this fellowship's running out and I need a different job. Like, have you guys heard of anything? And um, the co-founder of Vin, Paul Pion was one of my mentors and from vet school and again, like the power of relationships, we met and stayed in touch and like built that relationship over time. Um, and he said, well, have you ever thought about working for Vin? And I said, no, like, what would I do there? And um, long story short is um, like, I'm on, the, I'm on the Vin student team working as a student advocate um, on things like mental health, unsurprisingly, um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, public health and policy, um, so some of my other interests. But um, yeah, it was like a, a confluence of factors where um, Vin was looking to add somebody to their student team, and I, I knew the person who um, was, you know, in charge of picking that person. And, I, you know, when I, when I met my boss, um, I met him in vet school and I, I did not keep up that relationship with the intent of like one day having a job there. I just, to me, it's just important to like maintain relationships and like have these touch points throughout the profession where you can like, if you need an opinion from somebody about something you're doing, then like you can tap into that and say, Hey, you know, that, that relationship is already there. So it's not, awkward to like cold call someone and say, Hey, what does like Vin think? Or what does Paul think about this? Like it's already there. And so anyway, um, that, that relationship already existed. And so it was, 
it's it's like that phrase um it's not what you know it's who you know um and that again speaks to the like the power of networking and relationships yeah i couldn't agree more um and especially like it's interesting as well hearing how you transitioned from being a vet student to then helping vet students in the way that you are which i think is a really interesting thing to look at um and also interesting that as because you didn't go into practice I kind of relate to that quite a bit because I mean I graduated and went into the job that I'm in now and also went and, and did the masters that I'm doing now so as well it's interesting to see that you're just proof that you you were a vet using all of the skills that you've learned as a vet but you're using them and applying them to something massively important it just happens to be different to being in practice yeah yeah and I think um I think that role as the national SABNA president is, is hugely influential in terms of this role I have now, because I spent two years basically like being attuned to the needs of veterinary students everywhere in the US. And now I'm, that's not a new skill that I have to learn. Like I, I know how to listen to vet students and how to figure out what they need. Like I've already done that. And so, um, in a way, like, yeah, that was a skill I didn't expect to pick up during vet school. Um, you know, I, I expected the, like, suture skills and, you know, like, how to do basic things in the clinic. Um, but this communication and uh, serving veterinary students was not something that, like, if you had asked me on day one of vet school, like, would you you know, would you learn this in the next four years? I was like, no, I don't think so. Um, I think I'd be focused on like, you know, my classes and my coursework, but um, it did it did turn out to be like a great piece of training for this role. And it's, it's something that I, at, like at least at this point in my career, I think is an absolutely great fit. Um, I hope I can always say that about what I do. I, I know I look back on my, like just on this conversation, I look back and see how often I've changed roles and like how often I've switched things. So um, we'll see like, which is the immovable object and which is the, what what's the other one? The force, the, yeah, the irresistible force versus the immovable object. Like one of those two has to give. So like either I'm going to stay in this role because it's awesome and a great fit or at some point I'll be doing something different, but um, for now it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think as well, like it's, it's about thinking that when you're doing one thing, that doesn't mean you have to do that one thing forever. Obviously, if you find something that you love and, and that's what you want to do, then that's like great. But I suppose it's just showing that that is really normal to, to not, you know, you can move, like you're not stuck in one thing. If you're not getting anything from it or you're not really, you don't love what you do, then, um, yeah, because I felt a similar thing with vet school. Like I felt a bit trapped that, you know, oh, I had to be a clinical vet at the end of it because that's what it was all about. Whereas actually what I'm doing now is so much more fulfilling for me personally than had I gone into practice just because I felt like, you know, it was something that I had to do. So really valuable what you've said. Like, and I can relate a little bit as well with it. I'm glad you found that. Yeah, definitely. And I think it just shows as well that there are a lot of people that feel a similar way and being a clinical vet is like one of so many different things that you could do. It's just about finding what what's right for you, I guess. 
Um, and I wondered as well. So for my master's, we received a science policy module, which was really interesting because it was more broadened to just science in general. But I hadn't really covered a lot of policy before, even at vet school. Things were discussed, but it wasn't there wasn't really any sort of focus on it. And I was interested in, in your opinion on that in terms of I mean, I know teaching in America is slightly different to teaching in the UK. But do you think there could be more done to teach vet students on policy and policy related subjects while they're studying? Yes. Short answer, yes. I think more could be done. Um, I wonder, though, uh, like I remember, I remember the, the little bit of public health and policy training that we had or like courses that we had that were mandatory in vet school a lot of people like didn't show up for and they weren't interested in and um it it just is you know because like what i said earlier like people a lot of people who go to vet school go for clinical training and um they don't go to learn about policy and so like so that's why i say the short answer is yes but the long answer is like would it would it make a difference so i know of one school in the u.s that does have a mandatory course that is all about advocacy and policy. And they, they say that their students are really engaged for that and they, they really enjoy it. Um, and I don't know if that's because it is mandatory. So like they do, they are graded on it and they have to show up. Um, and, and I also recognize my own um, huge personal bias here because like I would love to see more being taught but to like, if I take a step outside myself and recognize objectively, like, so you'd have to take something out of the curriculum in order to put that in. And then, you know, you'd have to see if that is actually something that is benefiting the students in some way. I think it would be worth doing a little bit more. Um, but I guess I think, I also think that the folks who are really interested in that, like me, for example, um, seek experience outside the classroom there. And that's that's true of, of areas in vet med that outside of policy, like wildlife or laboratory animal medicine, like those were, you know, we had electives offered on those things and we had electives on policy and like the 10 people who were in that policy course, we loved it. Um, and so the reason I'm hesitant is because I wouldn't want um, I wouldn't want it to backfire in a way that like made vet students think less of it and like left a bad taste in their mouth. And if it was like something they were forced to do that they don't care about, and then they're even less interested in it um, after school. Um, I do think though that like the average veterinary student or veterinarian um, would be benefited by, I think this could be done in like a couple of lectures or like maybe a week, um, illustrating how policy is not just, um, I don't know if you've heard of like the Green New Deal over there, but like that's that's the US's um, big climate change bill in Congress. So it's like, my point is like, Policy is not just these like huge things that happen in DC. Policy is also like what your clinic's policy is on 
how late a client can be before you say, sorry, we're moving on. And how, if they're rude to you or if they're racist, then like you fire them. And like policy touches all parts of life. Like policy dictates that I can do this for my job. Um, you know, policy dictates that the the internet that I am using to be on this phone call like is what it is. And, you know, it's, it's at your state veterinary medical association level. It's like, again, it's like at local levels. And I think people think of policy as this big nebulous thing that only some people do. And in fact, it's, you know, like we, as students at Illinois, um, we lobbied for a policy to our, our administration to have a therapist on the vet school campus and not just like off campus, which was miles away, but like have somebody dedicated to only the veterinary students. And, and another policy about like how fourth year clinical schedules were, um, were determined and, and when. And like, those are all policy. And it's all about like, I think policy, like the, the number one thing in terms of like achieving a policy change is getting a tipping point of people involved. It's like how, how much of a coalition you have, like, cause I can go to the Dean and complain about, you know, why, Hey, Hey Dean, I think we should have a therapist on campus, but it means a lot more if I like have a letter signed by the entire class and with other faculty members on board, like that is a lot more impactful. And so, um, the same thing in a clinic, like if you had every doctor, every technician, every assistant, like show up to the clinic manager, the hospital manager and say, we want this and this and this. So like, you might not get it right away, but you would at least have a conversation because they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is a really big issue and everybody here cares about it. So um, that's what I wish was in veterinary school and um, that I wish more veterinarians knew is like they have a lot of power to change policy wherever they are. Um, they just have to get together and do it like care about it. Yeah and I think as well it, it is about making it so that students can see that it's relevant just like you said you know it's about having that relevance to what they would be doing if they were in clinics or if they were doing something else like the fact that you're right it isn't just policy is like this massive thing that happens only within government but something that can literally be applied to those sort of real life situations which I think is really important and um, as well mm. like for me being able to do that module on my course and and have I guess the veterinary degree behind me and then looking at it in a slightly different aspect was also really interesting because it it kind of reinforced that which again is like it's really important um yeah I kind of wanted to end in in a sense of we've kind of discussed a lot about um what you've done up until this point and I was wondering if you had anything you know exciting lined up either you know, personally or with work or just some like project that you've got in the works that you're able to talk about or that you're planning on doing yeah I'll give you one of each um so personally um so yeah, the last bit of my story is that um, when I took the job with Veterinary Information Network, um, my wife also got a new job. Um, she works for the American Red Cross and 
um, she she was working there and got a different job within Red Cross, um, but they were both remote. And so we we had always wanted to move back to Chicago um, because that's where we're both from. And we want to um, like set down roots here and try to have kids. And um, we moved here uh, a little bit over, well, gosh, it's like maybe this, this timeline just keeps changing. Like, it seems like it's a lot over a year ago now since it's almost May. Um, we moved here in, in January of last year, but, um, or, or February. Anyway, it was like a few weeks before everything changed and the, um, the pandemic and the lockdowns. And like, our plan was to be here for three weeks at my parents' house, but still here in the house I grew up in, which I think is hilarious. Um, and, but we're, uh, we're like looking at apartments in Chicago this weekend and um, hopefully going to move soon. And my wife has both shots. I've got one. So we're feeling like safe enough, like we can do that. And uh, yeah, that'll be a big step. Um, and then professionally. So I completed most of my master's in public health in veterinary school but the way that Illinois has it set up is you can't finish it until you're out of school. And I had this thought that I would like finish it while I was in DC because you can do it remotely. Like you don't have to be anywhere for it. And so I was like, Oh, I'll finish it there. And of course, like those, both those fellowships just like swallowed all of my time. Um, Cause there was like so much to learn and so many people to meet and, and I was sick of school and I was like, I'll just do this later. Like, it's not, it's not really affecting my, you know, what jobs I get. It's not holding me back professionally. Um, but now that we're more settled and, uh, you know, not doing a new thing every year, um, I am going to attempt to finish my MPH. So that, um, that is something that I've just like, I've just always wanted to finish since I got most of the way there. Um, so yeah, that's that's next, I guess. I mean, they're both equally exciting things. I mean, and it's it's really nice as well, like the fact that you can then begin to settle down and and I guess like have those roots. We're like, yeah, we we would want to to do that um, around you know chosen family, like around our friends, and our our both of our families are close by too, and so um, that is like. Yes, it's fun to like to do the apartment hunt and like go see where we might live and all that. But it's also like it's legitimately like a good thing for mental health to know that we're going to be in walking distance um, to some of our really close friends and like be able to see them regularly. Being close to both of your families as well, that's a really nice thing to do, especially when you've been away and like traveling to different places and living in different places. So yeah, no, I totally get that. I think that, you know, family and friends are so important. I wondered, is there anything that you would like to discuss that I haven't already asked you? Oh, no, I think this has been a great discussion. Um, well, I guess, I mean, I hope everyone knows this. If there are vet students listening out there, this is just a plug for where I work. But like every vet student has a free membership to VIN. So if you don't know that, then now you know. And no, other than that, this has been really nice. Thank you so much. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.
You've been listening to Mego in consultation with Matt Holland. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please keep an eye and an ear out for more in consultation with podcasts, which are now available online on our website and across podcast platforms such as Spotify and Google Podcasts. If you want to find out more about Matt's work at the Veterinary Information Network or VIN, go to vinfoundation.org for more information. I'd really recommend it. It's a really useful resource of information and you can also check out their podcast called The Veterinary Pulse, which Matt co-hosts. They discuss some really interesting topics, so definitely go and check them out. You can also follow Matt on Twitter at Holofant, that's H-O-L-L-A-P-H-A-N-T. I'd recommend it for his fantastic haikus. You can also find out more information about Vet Report and about the In Consultation with series at vetreport.net. Thanks so much for listening.